Hello, hello. Nathan with you on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Waving from my home on the lands of the Woiwurrung people in Melbourne, where we are still in lockdown and wading through all the challenges that this experience brings. To those who are doing it particularly tough right now, I'm thinking of you. In Australia in particular, we are all at different stages of lockdown. Some of us have our heads above water, others don't. It's a time to, to tune into the collective and hold if we can, or lean on others. Remembering our interconnectedness is such a strength, particularly in moments like this. So we have Pico Aya on our podcast today, who is widely regarded as one of the best travel writers of our time. But he's not just a traveller of the outer world, he writes beautifully on the inner journey as well. I had the great pleasure of chatting with Pico for a Dumbo for the magazine many moons ago about how we tend to our inner worlds and the importance of stillness for arriving at new places within. Pico has written for Time magazine, the New York Times and many others for more than three decades. He's also published 15 books and done four TED Talks, which have received more than 12 million views. It felt like a a rich time to chat with Pico again and to hear his reflections on the past eight months. It's been nearly four years since we last talked. (laughs) And, you know, that conversation we had together was a lot around the urgency of, of slowing down and cultivating the inner resources for our busy external lives. You know, and as I was thinking of, of our chat together, we're in the middle of 2020 now and for many of us, we've kind of been forced to, to slow down and it'll go inward, I think. This time has really been an invitation for that and those of us who've had the privilege to do so might have been able to do so. And I wanted to hear a bit about how you've been processing uh, the past few months, what's kind of come up for you. What is what this period been well, saying? Well, exactly, as, as you say, I mean, this flows so naturally out of our previous conversation and the sense that our lives were accelerating out of control and that this is a rare chance to bring them back into control. We were almost living at this post-human pace. And this moment has invited the fortunate among us, whose lives and loves and livelihoods are intact, to return to a human pace and to remember what really sustains us. It's as if we've been stripped of a lot of diversion and distraction and the ways in which we run away from the essential. And therefore, I think, been invited to come back, as you said, to the inner landscape, which is really where the only resources that matter lie. Um, so, of course, you know, I'm relatively fortunate because uh, I spent the first half of this season uh, with my wife in Japan. So we were enjoying a radiant spring taking walks around our neighborhood. We've lived in that same flat for 28 years. We've never taken walks five minutes away from our apartment. And there we suddenly came upon this extraordinary bamboo forest with flowering cherry trees and nightingales teaching their young to sing. And it sort of reminded me that this constraint has liberated us in certain ways. And at least in my case, moved me to take notice of what I otherwise sleepwalk past. It's been a moment when we can't take anything for granted, and we therefore notice some of the beauties that we've taken too easily for granted. Uh, And then I flew back to California, which is where I'm talking to you from now. Uh, My mother is 89. She was actually rushed into the hospital just after California went under lockdown in March, not for anything virus-related, but just because she was losing blood. And so I couldn't visit her while she was in the hospital, but as soon as she came out, uh, I flew over to be with her. And of course, that too dramatized the sense of, of the 
invisible savings account being really the only one that we have. And that when I flew across the Pacific to be with my mother in the middle of the, I suppose, the height of the pandemic, I realized <laughs> that you know, my checkbook, my resume, my business card, none of that would help her. The only thing that I could bring to her was whatever I gathered in stillness. And so the last four months, uh, I've been here in California. And again, my family has lived in the same house two-thirds of the way up a mountain for 54 years. And I'd never walked to the end of the road till now. And now with my wife, every morning, we take a walk along this extraordinary mountain road. And every now and then, I'll just look what's behind me as I'm taking this walk. Great blue Pacific Ocean stretched out and islands in the distance. And I think this is the kind of view that I will spend a lot of money and time traveling all around the world to see it's right here, literally in my backyard. And I've never even taken the opportunity to make the most of it in, in next to my parents' house. Last of all, I've realized um, because I went to school by plane from a very early age, this is probably the first time in more than 50 years when I've been in my mother's house every day for 100 straight days. For an 89-year-old mother, probably the best gift I could give her and the greatest unexpected blessing. Suddenly, she gets to see her son and daughter-in-law who usually on the far side of the world or gadding off somewhere. <laughs> so I've really been sensitive to the, the treasures the season has brought. And I think many of us, if only we wake up to the fact that we can concentrate on what we do have, which often makes us grateful, and we can concentrate on what we don't have, which makes us frustrated, as long as we're in relatively good health. Mm. I wanted to pick up on you kind of exploring your, your neighborhood a bit more and walking around your neighborhood. I noticed for our listeners, we sent a community survey to our alumni and to our readers and partners, asking them kind of what lockdown had brought up. And I was intrigued by yours, Pico, because you'd mentioned that you'd gone for walks around your block every day and it was unprecedented for you. And I thought, you know, reading so much of your travel writing, a walk is always the first thing you do when you're in a new location. And so I was quite surprised that that wasn't something you were doing in your regular life. <laughs> so clever of you to put that together, Nathan. You're absolutely right. I guess it speaks to the reason that I've been a traveler, which is that I find I sleepwalk through my everyday life to a dangerous extent. And whenever I get on a plane or go to a place that I think of as new, I click on all my senses. I'm asking questions of it. I'm out on the street walking and walking. But at home, I never do that, even though my home is the kind of place that many people would travel a very long way to see. And so to me, it also reminds me that how much of this got to do with perception. I think, oh, home is a place I know. And so I never pay attention to it. And I don't really know it at all. And as you wonderfully point out, I don't take the walks around my home that I would take even if I were in North Korea tomorrow. And I've been shortchanging myself in the process. Hmm. When, we, when we spoke, we, you mentioned about the first half of your life, kind of really being about the external, the travel writer going to places and discovering the unknown in the outer worlds and really being enlivened by that process. And then you talked about the second half really being about the inner journey. And I'm interested in what you've learned about the second half, because I think for many of us who have been forced into lockdown, I'm interested in how we keep that spark of inquiry alive in the kind of contained environment. Yes. It's interesting, the older I get, the more I remember this wonderful line from an old Japanese film in the 1950s, which I didn't understand when I first saw it, which involves some guys in their 50s probably sitting around and saying, the older you get, the more you find to enjoy in life, the more you appreciate mm. things. And curiously, unexpectedly, that has been my experience. 
the conversation you and I enjoyed four years ago has really stayed with me. And I remember, I think when I was talking to you, I suddenly thought, well, I'm in act four of life. And it's a little like when you're getting towards the end of a play and suddenly you can see the patterns. When you're in the thick of something, you're just fumbling your way through. But as you come out into act four of any great play, you start to see what it all means and you can assess the surprises and some people's lives have gone very differently than you expected and others haven't. Mm. So I've certainly been relishing that sensation. And I think... Traditionally, one might say the first half of life is about making a living, and the second half is about making a life, and very much about those intangible resources that one can begin to acquire. I'm actually reading, by complete chance, a book called Falling Upward by a wise Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, which is entirely about the second half of life and how to do justice to it, because so much of our emphasis, especially in education and, of course, growing up, is on that first half which is important, you know, putting money in the savings account and building a, a home and a family and a, and a career. But who are you and what do you do when all of that is not your first priority? And it pushes us against the wall. So again, in a curious and maybe a selfish way, during this lockdown time, one thing I found is as a writer, for the first time I can remember, <laughs> I get to write and write and write. Instead of jumping on planes and taking those long walks that you and I were describing, Every morning I, I wake up when the light comes up, I go to my desk and I write most of the day. And so to that extent, it's allowed me to live much more the life I've always dreamed of and longed for and told myself I can't have. And it's allowed me to enjoy, I'd, I'd say, the richness of life, which comes when you're sitting in one place. You know, in Tibet, they say much better to dig one well that's 60 foot deep than 10 wells that are six foot deep. Yeah. You know, one of the small surprises I found, which again, many in the Dumbo Feather community might have noticed too, is that I started, especially in March and April, getting really long, thoughtful letters from strangers and also from old friends that I haven't heard from in years. Mm. And my friends have been writing to me about solitude and uncertainty and hope and family, just the kind of things they would never be addressing in the normal run of things. Many of us have been taken deep. It's unsettling. It's like going to the doctor's office and the doctor not looking so rosy as he mm. surveys your results. I mean, I think ultimately it's, it's as healthy as going to the doctor's office because uh, if, if something is wrong in your life, it usually only gets fixed by going to the doctor. And I think we've all been forced back onto our own resources this time to think about what has been healthy and unhealthy in our lives and what new habits we want to take into our lives once things begin to return to normal and which habits we can share. Mm. We've been talking a lot about this kind of period or using the analogy of a, of a rite of passage, so being separated from what's normal in our, in our lives and then entering this time of great uncertainty, as you, as you pointed out, um, which could be described as a liminal space also because it's unknown and there's a great shift from, from what's familiar a transformation process could well be be taking place if we want to put that lens on it. You've always written so beautifully about the transformation that happens from travel, which could be seen as a rite of passage as well. When we leave our homes and go into a foreign place, there is something being transformed in us. I'm interested in that conversation around the ingredients of, of transformation, or maybe even as we start to think about leaving lockdown, you know, what is it that we want to keep and, and hold on to and how do we, how do, we do that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think you put it so beautifully just now when you sort of said that the possibility for transformation is there if we want to 
turn our mm. lens on it. Mm. So it's up to us, really, whether we want to make the most of that possibility or just see it as an affliction or complain about the reality of, of mm. the moment. I absolutely agree with you. And I often think it's only when we lose something that we have the chance to head off in a different direction. And it's an interesting thing because, as you say, this, this is a period of intense uncertainty and we're all keenly aware of it. But in some respects, I think every moment is a time of uncertainty. As you probably remember, I lost my house once in a forest fire, which everyone in Australia knows much too much about, and everyone in Greece and all over the place. And those who aren't facing forest fires are facing hurricanes and typhoons and floods and so many other things, car crashes, you name it, cancer diagnoses. More and more as I get older, wary of telling any of my friends what's going to happen tomorrow or tonight, because um, I really don't know. Uh, and that's certainly the case in the virus season. But I'd say it was a, the case when I spoke to you four years ago, and it'll be the case once we emerge from this lockdown too. And like anybody, I, I make plans. But I think I make plans more and more in the knowledge that things will go differently. And I suppose in the hope that something wiser than myself will take my plans and push them in, in a different direction. As a writer, much of my life involves making an outline. And much of my being involves knowing that once I'm writing, something else will take over. My outline will fly out of the window and things will come out of me I didn't know I had inside me. And that's actually how the writing process or any creative process works, ideally. You're taken to places you didn't know existed and you would never have thought to visit. As a traveler, of course, that happens. But I think all of us in our relationships, in our jobs, in our lives, to some extent, are at the mercy of forces that uh, we couldn't have anticipated and are often the better for them. Um, just last year, by chance, I, I brought out a book called Autumn Light, which was really about two things, um, living with mortality and living with uncertainty. It was about the seasons in Japan and the religion of impermanence that hovers over Japan and the death of people around me and others of us getting older. And I think. Spending more than 32 years now in Japan, I slowly realized that impermanence, which had such a dark quality when I arrived there, isn't a recipe for grief. It's actually a cause to find our wonder, our inspiration, our beauty right now, because everything is uncertain except this moment. And the only thing I can really be certain of is I have this moment to talk to Nathan for the first time in four years. It's a radiant afternoon. And let me make the most of it. Let me make the most of the radiance of the afternoon. Let me make the most of the chance to have this conversation because I don't know what will happen three hours from now. And it's a very fact that things don't last that means that they matter. It's a very fact that we die that's the reason to make us try to live well and, and purposefully and, and consciously. And it's a fact of limitation that allows us to enjoy the freedom within limitation. So in many ways, I would say that the uncertainty of the virus season has moved me to try to cherish every moment, to be grateful for every day when I and many of the people around me are not sick. And as I say, to, to remember all the reasons I have for gratitude. For example, I have a mother who's lived to the age of 89. That mm. wouldn't happen to many people through human history. I'm in my 60s now, and so far have been relatively healthy, that's a blessing that I too often forget. So as you say, I think when we travel, 
we're inherently optimists. In other words, my sense is that we're always much too conscious of everything that's going wrong at home. And when we take that leap of faith involved in going to another place, even if it's just another part of Australia or California, we're going in an optimistic spirit, eager to be moved and stirred, and, and in fact, maybe to be transformed. And what affects the transformation isn't really the place so much as that openness, as you said, that we choose to turn the lens we choose to open our hearts to the possibility of transformation. And I think many of us have closed our hearts to that possibility when we're at home. In other words, often just to survive at home, my default mechanism is wake up at the same time, go through the routine, assume that everything's going to go as planned, and go to sleep and continue the next day. And, and I think most of us are, are like that just to get our, our jobs done. But in the process of that, we don't really leave the space for transformation. And it's, it's only when we're in these uncertain moments where we're shaken out of our routine that suddenly there's that chance for going somewhere new and for looking at the world with new eyes. Mm, I love that. As you were saying that, it, it took me back. As I mentioned to you before, we kind of come in and out of lockdown in Victoria here. And as our kind of case numbers of cases have risen in Victoria, we've kind of gone into deeper and deeper stages. So, you know, the past few weeks we've gone from stage two to stage three to stage four and every time we go through a new stage I really find it quite difficult my initial response was oh I'm losing another freedoms I'm losing the freedom now to go to the markets with my partner losing the freedom to go and do some personal training at the park and you know what you just reminded me then is that it is the perspective and that there is a constraint as you said can create a liberation if we choose it to be so and I think that's where some peace can be found rather than me wrestling against all of those freedoms being lost. Yeah. I mean, any argument with reality is an argument that all of us are going to lose, <laughs> that we have to make a peace with reality at the moment and work with it. But as I was listening to you, I was thinking, you're going to be so happy when you can go and um, to the mm. make up and do that exercise. As I was listening to you, I was thinking to myself, tomorrow, all being well, I'm going to go to a bookshop, my local independent bookshop for the first time in six months. And I'm going to be so excited about it <laughs> when I can finally go to a cinema again, which is something I love to do, how delighted I will be. And so I'm not sad to be reminded of uh, these things I take for granted that are actually wonders and sources for appreciation. And I think you know, the one thing I've done, and I think a lot of people have done during this period, is I very much limit my intake of media. So I try to make sure I never take in more than five minutes of news every day, and ideally two minutes or less. And of course, in a moment like this, it's very important to be well-informed and to know how best to protect others and ourselves. But I think one can actually get that information very quickly. As I hear myself say this, it's funny because, as you probably know, I, I've been in the mainstream media for 38 years. My job is to work for the New York Times and the Financial Times and all those others. But I think it's because I've been a journalist for so long, I'm keenly aware that there's very little news that's really essential every day. And most of it is opinion, speculation, argument, mm. assessments from scientists that most of us lay people don't know how to assess. And it only kind of cuts me up and makes me feel powerless. And conversely, if I look at this beautiful afternoon, as I speak to you, as I take a walk in the mountains or in the ocean, as I excitedly go to the bookshop, I hope tomorrow, those all expand me and remind me I'm not powerless and I haven't lost everything. And even the things that some of us have lost, like the chance to, to go to the neighborhood shop, we're not losing very long, I think. Mm -hmm. So 
Again, I think it's almost the choice we have between those things that cut us up into fragments and those things that expand us. Mm. After you and I spoke four years ago, I was doing an onstage conversation two years ago with um, a writer in California, mm. and he told me how every day he woke up, and as soon as he woke up, again by habit, he checked his emails and he read the news. And he said, after about two hours of this, he was in panic. I mean, he was in such a stage of confusion and rage and fear that his loved ones and his colleagues didn't want to be close to him. And finally, he saw what was going on. And he thought, no, let me stop this. And every morning when I wake up, let me read a poem instead. Mm. And as soon as he just reoriented himself in that way, he found that his wife and kids were very happy to see him, wow. that he was sharing with them joy and expansiveness and fresh eyes, mm. and that everything in his day went differently. And then again, it was just, in his case, a chance of cutting that habit that he'd got unthinkingly into. Mm, and because the poem softens as well. Yeah, and, and what yeah. really sustains me, enlarges me, helps me get through the day. In my case, it's seldom the newspaper, but it might often be poetry or music or the ocean or a myriad other things. And you've always said so beautifully, you know, that we're most transported when we're least distracted and we're most at peace uh, when we're deeply absorbed. Exactly. And when I was reflecting on that, I was thinking, you know, we can be in lockdown and we can be in our homes and, and going at a, at a much different pace to how we were before, but we can still busy ourselves within these four walls. The constant news checking and, you know, we can become obsessed with the, the daily numbers. Yeah, and the daily numbers are sort of an example of something that's unlikely to make us feel good. And there's very little we can do about it. I mean, I think most people I know are trying to take every precaution they can so the daily numbers are taking us away from reality. This is a perfect occasion for absorption and for being able to forget the lesser stuff of life because you know most of us are not in the freeway two hours a day as we might be otherwise, and we're not racing from appointment to lunch to tax office as we might be. There's a potential for a gift here. And as I say that, I'm keenly aware that probably many people who are listening to this conversation are busier than ever perforce because they're having to do their work from home. Mm -hmm. There's on Zooming 12 hours a day. They're surrounded by little kids who don't want to be at home and, and partners who are in a state of cabin fever. And I mean, the conditions are really, really difficult for almost everybody across the planet right now. But the fact that they're difficult doesn't mean that they're impossible and doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can do with them. I was actually thinking about how it's been being a travel writer at this time. I know, I know you've still been doing some travel writing. It's going to be very different for us going forward in the future, how you've reflected on that part of, of yourself. And also, I wanted to hear a bit about the last trip that you, you went on. Yes. Yeah, so to speak to the first, I'm not really worried because I think travel, as you were suggesting a few minutes ago, is really about transformation. It's about an encounter with something that's so different or unexpected that it jolts us out of our norms or ourselves and helps us to see the world differently. And that certainly, as you can tell, has been happening to me in my neighborhood. And mm. all of us know that a drive across town can turn your life around in a way that a trip to Namibia might never. The distance and destination are the least important part of travel. And the most important part is how much you return home somebody slightly different from the person who left. That has nothing to do with going to Timbuktu or Easter Island and everything to do with first your openness and then what circumstances you happen to meet. So I know there was a lot of concern and various people were asking me, especially in May, about the end of travel. Mm. And I was remembering how 
in early 1990s, we were told that we were observing the end of history. And on September 12, 2001, we were told that we were witnessing the end of irony. Uh, now we're being told we're going through the end of travel. And I think really it should be the end of predictions. None of us knows what's coming. We've been proven wrong every time we've said it's the end of anything. Yeah. But I think travel, again, is, is essentially something that takes place inwardly. And the externals are just a means to what you wonderfully said is transformation. And therefore, there'll always be those means that will throw open the, the windows and doors in our lives. Mm-hmm. Now, having said all that, to answer the second part of your question, I was tremendously lucky because I began this year going to uh, Antarctica. Oh, wow. Which was a, not like anywhere I'd ever seen or ever imagined. And so all I will say is that there was a sense of silence, of sublimity, of vastness beyond anything I've imagined and anything I've experienced. After just 11 days in Antarctica, I came back telling any friends, if you have the chance and if you can gather with the resources, it's a very remarkable experience. And I'd been to Patagonia and seen huge colonies of penguins before, and I'd been in many beautiful and empty places from Mongolia to Tibet, but nothing began to correspond. Just, for example, the colors. Really? I'd never known that ice flows would be blue and green and turquoise and azir and every color in between. And just the absence of humanity is startling. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can taste it as you're walking around in that midsummer light at 11 p.m. among 20,000 penguins with seals all around you and orca whales uh, not far away. Pretty remarkable. And it was interesting. I mean, fortunate timing. Again, as we were on this boat in late January, we began reading about a coronavirus in Wuhan Uh, in China. I think, well, how kind the heavens have been to me in so many ways, not least giving me that wonderful trip. Amazing timing. I mean, it must feel like another life. Yes, it is. But when people were worried about the end of travel, I was remembering that when the coronavirus season was most intense in East Asia, including in Japan, where I live, I had to fly from Japan to California just for a day, taking four flights in all to give a lecture. And then when Japan and California were under lockdown, I had to take three more flights to come back to California to be with my mother. So I think even if air travel is curtailed, which is a wonderful thing for the environment, Mm. which is something that will probably make many of our lives much happier, nonetheless, many of us still have to travel just to keep up with loved ones and to do our jobs. I think that will resume very quickly. And, you know, again, it's one of those things in the middle of the coronavirus season, like you, I've been thinking of the things that I've been missing. And sometimes I will think to myself how wonderful it was to be uh, sailing around Antarctica Mm. in January. But then I also remember, well, my regular life wasn't always wonderful, and I had plenty to complain about. And so are you still planning on going to the the Catholic Hermitage that you uh, had been regularly (laughs) going to? I'm laughing because uh, your question is so timely, and you know me so well. So this weekend, my wife and I will be there. Within 72 hours of this conversation, I'll be in that blue silence looking out over the ocean. Have you been maintaining that that trip regularly? See, I was there uh, in January before the virus hit. Of course, like most places, the monastery closed for a while. It's only open on a partial basis now. Mm. So actually, the chapel is closed. I think the monks practicing social distancing. They're not really gathering together the way they would otherwise. And there are only a very limited number of guests there. But that means that the great resource 
of that hermitage, which is silence, will be even more crystalline and even more clarifying, I think, uh, during this strange season than it, it usually is. And so I'm so grateful again to the monks for opening their doors to some of us and allowing us to partake of that, even in the midst of all these challenges. I feel like it would be quite a curious experience to go from a time of lockdown into a hermitage, you know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as I hear you say that, you're right. I'm going from one lockdown to another. I'm going from an enforced lockdown to a chosen lockdown. But I'm also going to a place that's consecrated to the idea that that small room in which the monks live is our lives. And that's where they find their paradise. And their lives, their job is to find their paradise in what looks to most of us as a very, very small, unfurnished, simple room. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, monks choose lockdown precisely so that they'll be able to give something and thrive even in the many lockdowns that life brings to us, literally and in all kinds of ways. So many things in life force us to stay put, and they are training themselves in the discipline of finding everything they need in the fact of staying put. There's a wonderful rock garden in Kyoto. It's a raked sand garden, and there are just 15 rocks placed across it in seemingly random order. And some people try to imagine what the rocks might represent, you know, islands in a clouded sea or a tiger with leading her cubs, all kinds of things. For centuries, people have been just contemplating this rock garden and, and trying to imagine how it can clarify them in their lives. And so when I first went to Kyoto more than 35 years ago, I made a pilgrimage to this garden and I was very happy to just sit there with the enigma of these 15 rocks. But after I moved to Kyoto, I found out that there was something even more important around the corner from that garden, which is just a stone basin that has a single Japanese character on all four sides of it. And it says, what you have is all you need. And in some ways, that has taught me even more than the rock garden. And I think that's what monks in every tradition are learning. And that's what lockdown offers all of us the chance to absorb. You know, we kid ourselves into thinking our lives would be so much better if our circumstances were different. But really, probably our lives would be better if our perspective were different. Hmm. You do a lot of a lot of work with corporations, you know, pretty much sending them the message of, of slowing down and your work will benefit. You, your advice was for them to work 10 months a year and they'd be more productive than 12 months a year or something like this. But what you were offering them was just to kind of take a walk, take time off, all of the stuff that we've been talking about, unplug for 20 minutes a day and the work will be better. I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed that you remember my life and you remember the things we've talked about <laughs> so very well. You're exactly right. J.P. Morgan, 100 years ago, always took two months off and said he could never do in 12 months what he did in 10. Yeah. And even actually during this season, I've been talking to sales representatives who are having, a, understandably, a really hard time trying to pitch their product when they can't see the clients. They're used to taking long dinners together and going out on the golf course, and now they're just Zooming. And one thing that they found is that they actually have to access their emotional intelligence and mm. call upon their humanity much more than they would ordinarily, because it's easy to talk business over a you know, three martini lunch, as it were. But when you're just on screen with somebody, how do you reach them? Uh, you have to call upon your emotional resources in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And of course, they're all trying to work out how to adapt to this new reality. But as you say, 
I have been telling them again that life has been giving you a chance just to reconsider your priorities and to see whether there are things that you're gaining from working at home that you can bring fruitfully into your life once you're working in the office again. Because most of us have certain priorities to do with the office, which have to do with maybe efficiency and productivity. And we have other priorities connected with our home life that have to do with humanity and space and kindness. And actually, those home priorities could very usefully be brought to our work life. So um, just as you're intimating so perfectly and intuiting, I think this is a good opportunity for people in the accelerated corporate world to think about how humanity is one of the assets that will make their lives richest and, mm. and most productive. And it's only recently I've been thinking about how happiness and productivity are really the same thing, whether you're a writer or you're working at a Dumbo Feather magazine or you're a parent. I, I think I said to you when we spoke four years ago that I think of absorption as the heart of happiness, but mm. both of them are all about um, just being able to pull something out from the depths, whether it's the depths of the universe or the depths of yourself that you can't do when you're running too fast or, or moving too much. Mm. I've been talking to them a lot about what I call the 3% rule, which is, you know, I try to go to that hermitage three days every season, and that's only 3% of my days, but it completely transforms the other 97%. So even if you're a corporate person thinking about investments and returns, investing 3% of your days and 3% of your day, which is 20 minutes of your waking day, into being quiet actually reaps extraordinary rewards. Mm -hmm. This time as well, a lot of the conversations we've had at Dumbo Feather have been around the world that we'd like to live into and what we're seeing from this vantage point about the kind of world that we would like to be living in in 20 years' time or that we'd like to leave our children and grandchildren in 40 or 50 years' time. And I feel like this, this period has allowed a lot of people to go into that space and to reimagine, you know, the systems that we're living in and the ways that we're living and just kind of dream a little, you know. We've really invited our, our community to do that. And so I thought maybe just from your vantage point now, what do you see as to where we are going or where you would like us to be going? I think once the cloud of the virus lifts in whatever form that takes, we're still going to be faced with the three most urgent issues that we were facing a year ago, which to me are climate change, the refugee crisis, and the widening gap between the rich and the poor in our societies and across the planet. And as you say, I think this virus moment has given us the chance to focus our attention on that. A year ago, if you and I were talking, we might have been saying we're too busy. I just said, oh, I'm off on my way to Antarctica. I'm going to A and B and C, so I, I can't think about that. And you would have been caught up in you know, going to do exercise in the park and going to the shop, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Now we're freed from some of that. And I think so many people who know much more than I do, have been thinking about how this moment of everybody stopping has been healthy for the environment and has certainly given us the time and space to think better about how we can protect the earth. And it's not our property, we are its mm. property. You know, we're coming out of a summer which probably saw the most devastating fires in Australia that I think you've uh, ever been through. Yeah. And certainly all the attention of the world in January was focused on Australia for that very good reason. And what made those fires take place hasn't gone away. So I think that's still a big priority. In a curious way, although the virus is a dictator, it's been very democratic in its effects. 
And what people are going through in Iran, in China, in Brazil, and the United States right now is, is not so different. Most people are going through exactly the same thing. And I think that's not a bad thing to remind us of the things that we share rather than the things that pull us apart. So I probably would leave it to other souls, maybe younger souls, to visualize the world of 20 or 50 years from now. But I would say that we will seldom have better time, as you said, for dreaming about it and for visualizing it. And right now, we've been suddenly given a time out in which to try to imagine the world we want to live in. And soon enough, we're going to be caught up in the details of it sufficiently. So um, this is the time to, to think about the world we want to create. Nico, thank you so much. Oh, it's always such a pleasure. To such a delight. <laughs> really, really. Oh, it's always such a delight to hear from Pico. Big thanks to him for his time and insights. I recommend his website, picoayajourneys.com, to immerse in more of this goodness. Thanks to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for doing the edit of this podcast. They're up on the lands of the Arakwal people, and I acknowledge the traditional owners there, here, and wherever you're listening from, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Keep a lookout for our upcoming issue of Dumbo Feather magazine, titled Consciousness Rising, it's issue 64. It's about everything that's come to the surface this year, what's shifting for people and what we're dreaming forward. You can visit dumbofeather.com for more.